On September 13, 2009, Jonathan Wodowski should have been waiting at the end of the aisle, watching his beautiful, intelligent bride-to-be walk toward him and the rest of their lives. Instead, he was waiting for investigators to confirm that the body they'd found behind the wall was indeed that of his fiancée, Annie Lee. I'm Laura, I'm here with my best friend Marina, and this is Grim. sad yeah it's sad it it doesn't get less sad no i'm sorry and i was uh, i was thinking of the case where the um bride got killed right after their wedding on the golf cart which was not murder and she wasn't in a wall so it's definitely not this case (laughs) but uh close though also sad not similar very similar circumstances it sounds (laughs) like perfect yeah no it's it is sad um but we'll we have a journey to get there okay tell you about it i'm ready Uh, So this is a suggestion, actually, from one of our lovely gremlins, Ashley, who has a personal connection to this case that I'll mention later. She is alive and well. It's not that that personal. um, But Glad you're still with us, Ashley. Yes, so thank Thank you. you. (laughs) And before we get into the case, we have a whole heck of a lot of Patreon shoutouts to do. Woo-woo! And we were not slacking. We recorded two weeks ago, which is now our normal schedule, and y'all just joined us and hope a lot of you I recognize on the discord so yeah we want to give you shout outs so the first one you didn't give us a first I, I will well I'll say a regular first name but it's pretty sweet so that's bad peace devil we love you carissa w carissa, Yay, we, carissa. Love you. we love thank you. you anna m anna m anna, thank you we love you Dallas T. Dallas T. Woo. We love you. <laughs> Woo. Alexa L. Alexa, Alexa L. Thank you Woo. so much. We, we love, love you. you. Heather S. Heather S. Woo. Woo. You're the best. Heather we S. You. We gotta keep gotta keep excitement. We're only halfway through. Many. We're ready. Okay. We got it. Bethany J. <laughs> Bethany Woo. J. We Woo. love you. We love you. Kaylee F. Kaylee Woo. F. We love you. I also really you. like how you spell your name. It's really pretty. <laughs> Alexandra C. Alexandra Woo. C. We Alexandra. love you. We love you. Taylor B. Taylor B. We love you. We love you, Taylor. Kate H. Kate H. We love you. Thank you so much. And Dana M. Dana M. Dana. We love you. I'm like literally dancing. Yeah. Guys. Oh my God. You guys are awesome. We love you so much. It's probably because I finally started posting about all of our P-Bonies on Insta. I was slacking on that. Guys, we have a bunch of pea bonies. So, yeah. like, if you want to hear them, just join our Check Patreon. Them Check them out. And, and the, all those gremlins did. Yes. So, all the pictures now are on Instagram. So, you Almost can still see them. them. Almost all of them. She's <laughs> getting there. Oh, yeah. Jeannie's not up yet. Is she? No, I posted Jeannie. Oh. I think I'm missing one from oh. mine. Oh, I'm working on it, guys. I have like a lot of stuff going on in my life, okay? And I'm just over here doing my best. Those sound like a lot of excuses. I'm full of them. <laughs> 
Well, we're excited about that. And we also should mention, I don't think we've mentioned in a while, sometimes we say it at the end, but I don't think I have, that we do have merchandise. Mm, um, mm-hmm. So if you're interested, you can check us out on Etsy. It's also in all of our link trees, so you can find that in Instagram bio and all that stuff. Um, we realized, and a shout out to Kate, um, one of our gremlins, for recognizing this and letting <laughs> us know that a lot of the, the uh, listings were expired, So, uh, which makes me think of that commercial that has the, we have ants. And it's like expired. Oh, yeah. expired. <laughs> that was our Etsy listing. Um, so that's all fixed now. So there's yeah. more than like a koozie. There's a lot of stuff on there. Sweatshirts, all that yeah. stuff. And guys, I'm really sorry. So I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm actually a lawyer. I am not like a social media <laughs> manager Etsy shop runner. So like I said, we're just, we're, we're just learning. over here. Yeah, we're learning. We're doing our best. Hey, we love to listen, learn and grow. Learn. Yes. And, and buy some merch. So far we're alive. <laughs> listen, and learn buy and buy some merch. Perfect. <laughs> Okay. Sorry. This was Coming, a long, yeah, yeah, this was a long intro, but we had so yeah. many things to say. Coming down from that high. Oh boy. Let's, Here it comes. Let's get into it. Um, but as usual, I am going to start uh, the today's case with some information about the victim. Mm-hmm. The victim of today's case was a truly spectacular woman, which we hate to hear. Uh, I want her to just be a piece of shit, you know? And you just, live when you're a piece of shit. Yeah, you don't exactly. get murdered. But she's not. She's wonderful. Annie Marie Tooley was born on July 3rd. Oh, July 3rd. It, today, as we're recording, it's July 5th. So she mm-hmm. just had her birthday or would have had. Oh, that's sad. Wow. Would have had her birthday. <laughs> anyway, she was born on July 3rd, 1985 in San Jose, California. Oh. She grew up with her aunt as well as her uncle. It was immediately clear that Annie was brilliant. Successful all through school, she graduated as valedictorian from Union Mine High School in El Dorado, California. Damn. Fittingly, she also earned the superlatives best of the best and most likely to be the next Einstein. Wow. Yeah. Now, colleges recognize this as well, and she got nearly a full ride to the University of Rochester in New York. Okay. Which is awesome. And mm-hmm. she actually deserves credit here, too. So she filled out 102 applications for scholarships to get that. That's crazy. Yeah, so she got some credit there, too. Uh, At Rochester, she studied cell development, biology, and medical anthropology. Say that 10 times fast. It sounds like you have to be really smart to even own a book with that title. To to know that that's a major (laughs) that you can go into. So from there, her ambition only grew. Annie was accepted into a graduate program at Yale Medical School in Mm -hmm. Connecticut, where she would pursue a doctorate in pharmacology. Wow. Small in stature, just four foot eleven and ninety pounds, she was large in impact. Annie worked at the Yale Animal Research Center on Ten Amistad Street. She worked in the highly secured basement of the building in room G thirteen. That gives me like horror movie vibes. I don't know why. Just the oh, and G13. I know this case yeah. now. Yeah. Yep. What a bummer. The team experimented on mice as part of research into enzymes that could have implications for treatment of cancer, diabetes, and muscular dystrophy. So some really important stuff. Yeah. Friends remembered her as someone who could juggle a joke with serious scientific research, someone who loved bargains and thought nothing of hunting down $2 shirts at Old Navy stores because the $5 ones were too expensive. I do that. (laughs) Same. I'm like, $12.99? Forget it. $11.99? Get over here. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Colleagues say that she was always up for a challenge and truly excited about her future as a researcher. One member of the lab said, Annie was a caring individual who would selflessly put the needs of others before her own. She would never say, I can't, but always, how can I help? Oh my gosh. You might say she lit up a room. It sounds like she was radiant. Yes. Yep. 
Um, she wrote, Annie wrote an article on crime and safety in New Haven in the February 2009 issue of Yale's magazine. She said, in short, New Haven is a city and all cities have their perils, but with a little street smarts, one can avoid becoming yet another statistic. Well, that's ironic. Well, sadly, it wasn't Ugh. the city that Annie needed to look out for. Oh boy. So... On the morning of September 8th, 2009, Annie took a Yale transit bus from her apartment to her office at the Sterling Hall of Medicine. A few hours later, she walked from that office to her lab at 10 Amistad Street, leaving her purse, cell phone, and wallet behind, just taking her ID. When she didn't return home to her apartment that evening, one of her roommates, Natalie Powers, called in a missing person to Yale police around 10.40 p.m. Natalie said Annie had not returned home after her last class and hadn't called her, which was unusual. The campus police fortunately took this seriously and began to investigate. Oh, that's good, because that's not what normally happens in our cases. They're like 18 days later, they decided to look into it. Exactly. That's why it's great that they did look into it. They interviewed Annie's friends and family who confirmed that she wasn't anywhere to be found. They also put an alert out to students and faculty to be on the lookout, even offering a $10,000 reward for information. Wow, that escalated quickly. Yes. Um, Her fiancé, Jonathan Wodowski, who was also a graduate student but studying at Columbia University, so just, you know, really good-for-nothing couple of people, (laughs) not not smart, you know. Um, He came in from New York. When days now had passed without any sign of Annie, her family flew in from California. News stations had jumped on the story, making it national news. And this was actually criticized as well as the immediate attention from the police. Why so much attention on this particular case? Right. The answer was easy. Yale. Yeah. Yep. It just draws attention. Uh, Apparently, there's a rule of thumb amongst many reporters that three murders at a Midwestern college equals one murder at Harvard or Yale. Oh, wow. Real nice. But I think it's true. I mean, I'm reading this case. Yeah. So that's de- depressing it's for multiple yes. reasons, but yes. yeah, I guess I can see that. So during the in- investigation, another student, Rachel Roth, who worked with Annie showed police a box of white balls. It's like, you know, almost like Clorox wipes mm-hmm. that appeared to have a blood spatter on it. The box of wipes was on a steel push cart inside room G13. Since the local police were waiting for the FBI at this point, the officers didn't touch the box of wipes, but they did have someone stand there and guard them. During this time, a man on the cleaning staff named Raymond Clark came into and out of the room several times. Now, I'm not quite sure why he was allowed to do that, but like I would have thought it was a potential crime scene. But right. I think at this time they were still investigating this as a disappearance, not a murder. Mm-hmm. So maybe that was why. But but if they had someone protecting, guarding yeah. something that they thought was blood spattered. Yeah. I, I didn't really follow why they allowed that. But one of the times that he came in, he walked over to the cart where the wipes were. He then stood in between the officer and the cart, like facing the officer he reached behind him and moved the wipes so that the blood spatter was facing the wall instead of in plain sight, all the while making small talk with the officer before leaving again. Okay. Mm-hmm. They obviously noted this. Okay, good. I yes. was like, I was like, we're hearing about it. Yes. So hopefully they caught that on yes. video or something. And this, by the way, was um, when I had texted you, I love reading police affidavits or arrest warrants. Are those the same thing? Um, well, it depends. Okay. Like an arrest warrant affidavit is 
the, okay. that's what gets signed and it okay. becomes the warrant. Cause I just, I'm, I make them the same words and I don't think that they are, but you can, <laughs> so. you can have an affidavit. That's not an arrest warrant. Okay. It's just oh, like a, a document oh, oh. with sworn statements oh. inside of it. Thank you. You're welcome. I like learning. Uh, anyway, that's when I was reading through this information when I had texted you that I enjoyed reading those. Mm, juicy. Very. So good. Um, all right. So when Raymond entered the room again, this time the officer observed him beginning to scrub the floor where the drain was with like SOS pads and cleaning solution, even though the floor appeared to be clean. And what the fuck? Like, what the fuck? Why wouldn't they be like, mm, okay, like, no, I no. I know. Because <laughs> even if it, even if he wasn't being suspicious, wouldn't you be like, we just want to kind of preserve everything the way it is here. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, there's a police presence here. Like, get the fuck out of this room. Yeah. Very strange. So now once the FBI arrived, they took the box of wipes as well as a lab coat that had red colored stains on it. And after confirming it was indeed blood, compared the DNA on the items with Annie's. It was a match. Yeah. The same day, Raymond Clark went out of his way to tell another officer that he knew Annie and that he had seen her the day she disappeared. He said that she left the building around 12.45 p.m., which is about 15 minutes before him, and that was about two hours before a fire alarm went off in the building. Obviously, investigators wanted to talk to Raymond further. He said that he'd met Annie a few months ago um, since he was responsible for cleaning her lab and caring for the mouse cages, but he never socialized with her and didn't have contact with her outside the lab. So this is that stupid guy who's inserting himself into an investigation because he thinks he's smart. Yes. But really he's stupid and he's just like giving them breadcrumbs. Precisely. To lead them straight to him. Let me tell you all this information that makes me, that I think makes me look innocent, but actually just gives you a perfect trail. Yeah. Um, So in the interview, Raymond elaborated on his timeline of events. He said he arrived at the lab for work around 7 a.m. He saw Annie working in her lab at about 1030 He left for lunch at 12, returning maybe 30 minutes later. At that point, he saw Annie gather up her stuff and leave maybe 15 minutes later. So we're at like 1245. And then the fire alarm sounded, clearing the building at about 1 or 1.30. Detectives also questioned Raymond about some scratches on his face and left arm. He said that was from one of his cats at Mm, home. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. An answer for everything. Mm. Or the mice cleaning their cages. (laughs) true. That would have been a better answer. Mm. Meanwhile, investigators were collecting evidence from what now was feeling more like a murder scene. Back at 10 Amistad Street, they gathered a rubber glove with what appeared to be blood-like stains, a low-cut white athletic sock with hairs and blood-like stains. Both of these items were found in a drop ceiling outside the room of G13. Mm. They found a pair of work boots, also with blood-like stains, labeled Ray C, and missing shoelaces. Finally, they found a blue short-sleeved hospital scrub shirt with, I think you can guess it, blood-like stains. He's like the racy. There's actually a Raymond cantilever that works here as well. Um, He was in the vicinity around the same time. I saw him. Yeah. Let me tell you all the details. Yeah, exactly. This also just happened to be the same type of shirt that Raymond was observed wearing in video surveillance. Mm -hmm. Tests on all of these items came back positive as blood and as a match to Annie and Raymond. Mm -hmm. In the lab itself, investigators uncovered a possible medium-velocity blood-like spray pattern on the wall that did test positive for blood and showed apparent efforts to clean the blood off the wall. The blood at the scene suggests there was a struggle consistent with Raymond's scratches. Mm. Not Not looking good. No. Detectives, but again, there's still Annie still missing at this point. Right. 
So detectives continued their search, and on September 13th, five days after Annie was reported missing, they entered a nearby locker room. As soon as they got in the room, they were hit with the smell of a decomposing body. Oh. They brought in cadaver dogs and quickly discovered a lifeless female body in a wall behind the toilet where there was a mechanical chase. They saw blood-like smears throughout the opening, behind the door frame, on the pipe insulation, and on the access panel. The victim, who we of course now know was Annie Lee, was wearing surgical gloves with her left thumb exposed. She was found upside down and partially decomposed with a broken jaw and collarbone, injuries that she had sustained oh while gosh. she was still alive. Oh no. Her uh, trigger warning for here, her bra was pushed up and her underwear was found around her ankles, indicating sexual assault. Semen was found on her underwear, but wasn't a large enough sample for the, uh, to test for a DNA match. Inside the wall with her was a pen with green ink, a stained lab coat, and a sock. Annie's autopsy determined that the manner of death was a homicide, as you also probably could have determined, mm -hmm. and the cause of death was strangulation. Mm. So investigators seized evidence from G22, the other lab that Raymond was responsible for cleaning. They took a cleaning sc spray bottle with blood-like stains, two small round-colored beads, which were later matched to beads on the clothing that Annie had been wearing, and hair fi fibers. They also found a white rag, tweezers, scissors, a screwdriver, and several plastic tubes in a clogged drain pipe in one of the labs. Dude, first of all, this guy made a mess he and did. then did a horrible job cleaning up. Yes. Thankfully. I just, well, and we'll get into this in a second, but like, this is also a locked down basement, like with video surveillance, not into the rooms, right. but like completely locked down. You know, who's scanning in, who isn't scanning out, right? who's there, like of all places to attack someone. Right. It seems very dumb, but well, I think we've, I think we determined that Raymond's not the no, brightest bulb. No, he's not. So although Raymond did have a valid key card, again, he had legitimate reasons to be in the lab for cleaning. Investigators pulled a report of his access leading up to and on the date of Annie's murder. Mm -hmm. This probably won't surprise you. They noted an increase in usage on that day, substantially higher than in the past, implying he had been in and out of the lab. In and out, in and out. In uh, well, literally, <laughs> listen to this. Between August 29th and September 8th, or in about 10 days, Raymond had entered the uh, G22 three times. On September 8th alone, he entered 11 times. Mm -hmm. In those same 10 days, he entered G13. So again, that's Annie's lab, just one time. On September 8th, he accessed G13 a shocking 55 times. Oh, okay, yeah. 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 So we're not like the 11 isn't, you know, fine, this is but. why he made such a mess and scattered everything. Uh, like, I, <laughs> yeah. In and out and yep. in and out. Okay. Um, and notably he was the only person to access G22 after Annie that day. Annie's friends had gone into G13 later in the day looking for her, but they were the only other ones. Mm. So investigators also reviewed security footage from September 8th. When Raymond arrived that morning, he was wearing blue jeans, white shoes, and a dark uh, colored jacket with white stripes. When he was later seen leaving during a break, he was wearing blue scrubs with a reddish drawstring. When he was outside for the fire alarm, the drawstring was blue. Okay. Finally, when he left for good at the end of the day, he was back to wearing blue jeans and a dark t-shirt. <laughs> so he had a few, a few costume changes okay. in that time. Now, Annie had entered the lab at approximately 10.09 a.m. She entered room G13 two minutes later, and that was the last time her ID was used. Oh. She was never seen exiting the building, of course, which we know. It's so sad. So something that bothered me from my research is that I keep mentioning that there is 
surveillance and everything. So I'm like, why wouldn't you have seen Raymond or anyone bring Annie's body out of the lab and into the locker room? But my guess is that they had, and I don't know this for sure, but that they had security footage on the outside of the building, but not the basement. And it's, so you just got recorded movements by key card versus video. Okay. But I just wanted to acknowledge that because I, that was bothering me the whole time. Like, wouldn't you have, wouldn't you literally see him bringing a body out? But you, I don't think there's video down there. Yeah. And it's pro yeah, it's probably like at the doors, like the outside yes, doors. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, now finally investigators looked at the sign-in sheet for that area. So in addition to King and they also had to write a sign-in. The initials RC were written, and this is how Raymond had signed in many times before. That's goddamn Raymond Cantilever. Any, <laughs> any guesses as to what color ink, by any chance? Green. It was, yep. So when he signed it in the morning, it was written in green, which was, of course, matched to the green ink in the pen found with Annie's body. When he signed in later in the day with the same initials, it was with black ink. Mm, that's because he, he lost his he pen. He didn't have his pen anymore. In the wall. Yep. Yeah. Um, so all of this was enough, more than enough, for investigators to get a search warrant. So before we talk about that, let's learn a little more about Raymond. Okay. His high school friends remembered him as a competitive baseball player who respected authority, volunteered to help the homeless, and raised money for cancer-stricken patients. Not what I was expecting Not, you to come out with. The, he is. It is so opposite from what anything you'd expect. No signs that this would be anything, except for huh. maybe one we'll talk about. He was also a member of the Asian Awareness Club. Many people who were interviewed about his history were absolutely shocked that he could be associated with such a violent crime. So here is the connection our Gremlin Ashley has to the okay. case. Like I said, fortunately, she is alive and well and nothing mm -hmm. to do with the, the murder side of things. Um, but although Raymond was originally from Branford, Connecticut, he went to Lyman Hall High School in Wallingford with her for his junior and senior years. So that's where she attended school. Dude. Yep. So she remembers that he played baseball um, and in fact was on the team on the baseball team at Lyman Hall in 2002 when they won states. Uh, she remembers him as shy and quiet, but described him as a nice guy, friendly, good kid growing up, basically everything that everyone else said. Right. Everyone else that is except his high school girlfriend, Jessica Del Rocco. Oh boy. Jessica said that Raymond was controlling, angry, and got physical with her to the point of really scaring her. She backed the widely held belief among the people who knew Raymond that he did have a contradictory personality. So he was outgoing and well-liked, but sometimes could seem dark and controlling. In the beginning of the relationship, Jessica said Raymond seemed to be the perfect boyfriend. She said he was very popular. He was a very nice guy. Everybody loved him. He was a good student, a great baseball player, and he was perfect, charming, sweet, and took her out. But about three months later is when he began to be controlling. He started dictating what she could wear and how she could speak. Oh, no. Yep. She finally had enough of this and called it off. But for about two weeks after they'd broken up, she had to be escorted from the school to her car because she was worried about him. Okay. And she must have reported this because according to the New Haven Independent, which obtained a copy of the 2003 police report on that incident, uh, Jessica also told police that Raymond had forced her to have sex with him. Oh, no. But she declined to uh, press charges. Oh, no, Raymond. Yeah. So there might have been overall, it sounds like everybody who uh, knew him in high school, friends, family, uh, fellow teammates, all thought the world of him. That mm. was the one dark area that came out. Kept it hidden. Um, yeah. So kind of makes you wonder what was underneath the surface. You hear, you do hear those stories though, yeah. like people, how they act behind closed doors uh -huh. and 
they groom people to stay away from their friends mm-hmm. and family. And then mm-hmm. if they ever come out and say, oh, well, they did this to me or they were abusive, they'll just gaslight them exactly. and make them seem like they're crazy. And they're like, you know me, like, you know, I would never do this, yep. but that's exactly who they are behind closed yep. doors. And obviously the facts, the, the fact that we're talking about this case, the facts speak right. for themselves with that. Right. Now, after graduating high school, Raymond found himself at a job at Yale University as a lab technician. He was responsible, as we know, for cleaning two of the labs and caring for the animals in each of them. Colleagues there also described him as quiet. In his personal life, he actually had a fiance named Jennifer Romadka. They had gotten engaged on New Year's Day 2008 with plans to wed on December 20th, 2011. She also worked at Yale as a lab technician. The two lived together in an apartment in Middletown, Connecticut. Although they didn't seem to draw attention in this apartment, one of Raymond's former neighbors when he lived in New Haven said he screamed at children and was very controlling of Jennifer. So that seems consistent with his high school girlfriend, Jessica. Who, like random children? I guess. Like, I mean, just around the neighborhood, probably. Like neighbors, <laughs> maybe they were being loud. Oh. <laughs> he wouldn't let Jennifer talk to anyone and the neighbor always heard a lot of yelling. So okay. I think that's some of the behind closed doors does screaming at children make you a psychopath because like you should probably watch out for me if it does i don't know we should ask your neighbors (laughs) they probably do hear a lot of yelling from here (laughs) oh my god i remember i remember when my kids were like really little and like they were very colicky like i would close my windows because i'm like the neighbors are going to think i'm murdering you and it's just that i'm changing your diaper and you're being overly dramatic about it have you seen that video um of the guy who's like parakeet is screaming help help me no okay so he it's like the ring camera view of him he's like working on his car out in the out in the driveway and police show up because they had calls of people hearing a woman screaming help me and he's like yeah no it's my parakeet and he like went and got it and it said i I might be saying parakeet i don't know if that's correct that parrot i don't know one of those it's probably the i know is it the big white one i don't know okay e- e- cockatoo is yes that- cockatoo <laughs> okay yes. anyway i don't know which one it was it was a bird <laughs> that had the ability to make these noises so then like the cops are like oh no it's okay but then people would comment on that video and be like but where did the bird learn that mm. where mm-hmm. did it hear those noises so mm. i don't know the resolution for that one. Ooh, so that makes me think of the movie suburbia stop it Stop referring to movies I don't know. Watch more movies. Like, Make a there's list. a solution to I'm this. too busy researching for Grimm. <laughs> I can't. Okay. All right. That was a big... Di- we digress. Yeah, we digress. Okay. Now that you have a better picture of Raymond, let's go back to 2008. Thanks to all of the evidence found at Tana Amistad, Raymond was detained on September 15th as a person of interest and served with two search warrants. He was also required to give a DNA sample. He could have been arrested at that point uh, if he'd refused, but since he complied, they released him the next morning at 3 a.m. Instead of going home, he stayed at a motel where police continued to monitor him while they oh, executed good. the search. Yes. You're like, instead of going home, he <laughs> headed straight to Bradley oh, Airport. No, he, I was like, no, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> now, in their search, investigators found blood on the kitchen floor in Raymond's home, as well as in his Ford Taurus. Police noted that Jennifer, his fiance, had ridden in this car with him after the murder. They did take a DNA sample from her as well, but she was not considered a suspect. Investigators also searched another car he used, as well as lockers at the lab. They noted that he had, quote, gone to great lengths to conceal evidence in multiple locations in unusual places. Mm-hmm. 
Overall, investigators collected over 300 pieces of evidence, reviewed about 700 hours of surveillance video. Which so many hours. So many hours. And interviewed more than 150 people. Good for them. Mm-hmm. Raymond was arrested shortly after 8 a.m. on September 17th, 2009 at the Super 8 Motel in Cromwell, Connecticut. He was held on a $3 million bail at McDougal Walker Correctional Institution in Suffield, Connecticut. And of course, he was suspended from his job and banned from campus. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jennifer, because remember I said she was also a lab tech at Yale, took a brief leave, but then returned to work at the university. Raymond originally pleaded not guilty at a hearing in January 2010, but changed his tune in March as a part of a plea deal. Mm -hmm. His guilty plea for the sexual assault charge was entered under Connecticut's Alford Doctrine, which we've talked about before. It's where the defendant doesn't agree to the facts, but agrees the state has enough evidence to get a conviction. You fucking think? (laughs) Like, yes. I just, when you were saying how many hours and how many witnesses, I'm like, why? Like we have these unsolved (laughs) cases where like, well, the cops let the video get deleted and they talked to three people and then they just ate lunch. And here it's like, there's one person who could have done it. And they're like, yep. we really, we combed through well, that was every honestly, piece of evidence. Some of the criticism on this yes. was like it. Yes, of course we want to solve this murder. And he deserves that um, t- justice. If it's you like want to call it that overkill but, yeah. solved it. Yeah. And it's just, yeah. So that part was frustrating and, and definitely got some negative press. Yeah. Um, so Raymond had also been charged with murder and felony murder. And I texted you to make sure I could ask this in the middle. (laughs) Um, I think I figured out why those are two different things in this. Is it because the felony murder is as a result of the associated sexual assault? I didn't understand how you could be charged with murder and also felony murder. Yeah. Because the, they're doing it. The, the, it's an extra crime. Like they have to, there's an extra element to the crime. So, um, I could be completely screwing this up, but I believe murder is a lesser included to felony murder because Mm -hmm. murder includes all of the elements of felony murder. And then felony murder has the extra that's in the commission of the felony. Got it. I actually followed that because I did Google it too. Um, So I think so. I think that's why they did both of them. Mm -hmm. Um, Now each of those, I guess, has a maximum of 60 years, a sentence of 60 years. And that would be, if they couldn't prove the sexual assault because if someone didn't believe it was him because they couldn't do sure. the DNA or whatever, yeah. they could still get him if they thought that he committed oh. the murder but not, but didn't sexually assault her. Oh, okay. That makes way more sense to me why they would do both because I'm like, why wouldn't they just do the worst one? Because something. because sometimes they, they're afraid, sort of like if you're doing like degrees of manslaughter, it can be like oh. a gamble. If you do a lesser included, you're sometimes giving the jury the out if um, if like you're shaky on that final element versus saying he's not guilty at all yes okay. yes so if you did oh. if you did the the higher one but you you're missing that one yep. element if yep. you don't include the lesser included it could just be a not guilty verdict oh. if you do both of them they can go for either one so but okay. but again strategically sometimes they don't want to give them that lesser one because the difference could be vast for sentences sure. you know yeah. especially if you have like different degrees of manslaughter so that makes a ton of sense for this case because i bet they did actually have trouble on the sexual assault like that 
that was that was very i'm gonna use it i feel like the circumstantial evidence is pretty strong if her bra is up and there's semen on her underwear and she's murdered they just couldn't prove it was him but they knew he murdered her so like the odds that he also performed like that somebody somebody else sexually assaulted her and he just swooped in to murder like i i think they would have gotten guilty on Mm -hmm. on that i don't think they would have had trouble but again he took a plea deal Mm -hmm. um so instead of each of those potentially being 60 years he got uh the plea deal took the total down to 44 years so his attorney said no surprise given the overwhelming evidence against him this was the best decision yes Uh uh-huh yeah raymond was formally indicted on june 3rd 2011 jennifer remained engaged to raymond and she and his family supported him in the courtroom he is currently incarcerated at cheshire correctional institution Mm -hmm. where he will remain until september 16th 2053 when he will be 68 years old Raymond has never given a reason why he killed Annie, but investigators suspected he might have been mad at her about the way she handled lab mice, according to emails they exchanged. Wow. Mm -hmm. He did write an admission of his guilt, though, and an apology in a letter shortly after his arrest. And I will post those pictures that I have the the full written um, admission. I'll post that on our Insta. Annie's life was cut short, but her legacy lives on. Yale established a scholarship fund in Annie's name. At her memorial service, her fiancé, Jonathan, said that she was a bright, vivacious, ambitious dynamo whose death cheated those who loved her as well as those who never had a chance to meet her. Oh, so sad. Yeah. So I thank you, Ashley, for sharing this case and bringing this to us. But yet another example of wonderful person lighting up a room and then someone just snuffing that light for no reason. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now it is Marita's turn because this is a split. Woo! Woo! Yay! Yeah, so we get these suggestions, but some of the cases, we feel like they're just too mm-hmm. short to leave it as one episode because, I mean, like a half hour, that's not enough for you guys, right? No. Like we need you something need your a little, fix. Yeah, we need something juicier. So, yeah. okay, ready? We're going to pretend like this is the start of a new episode. You okay. guys, are the gremlins ready? There's nothing quite like a day out on the water. You feel the wind in your hair, the cool spray of the sea on your face. You look to see your lines in the water just waiting for a fish to take a bite. But you need to grab more bait, so you go below deck and your joyful mood plummets when you see that your boat is taking on water. Pull in the lines, you yell out to your mother, your favorite fishing companion who came out with you for the day. You know you have to race back to shore, back to safety. But moments later, the boat is underwater and you're left fighting for your life fighting to be the sole survivor of this tragedy at sea. Well, that's what Nathan Carmen told investigators anyways, after he was rescued a week later. But as we know, things aren't always as they seem. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So, (laughs) 
were that just tickled me. Yep. Yep. No, <laughs> Hope that everyone was enjoyed good. that as much I, as we I did. enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> we do that actually when the like the real music at the beginning is playing yeah, we do. Uh, <laughs> because we are actually recording that whole time. So producer Mike has to listen to all that <laughs> and cut it and just put the regular music. I'm waiting, waiting for the day that he forgets to do that and we release it with <laughs> us talking over that. <laughs> So it's that'll anyway. be a real treat the day that that happens. <laughs> oh, it's usually actually at this point, just a repetition of what we then say back on the recording. Cause we're usually reacting to the yes. intro. So. And then we're like, Oh, sorry. Wait, <laughs> I that. should hold that. I should hold that thought. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So my thoughts on that, I, I will say are, I was with you. I was thinking, Oh man, we've done a lot of boat cases <laughs> and, because it's summer and it's yeah. nice. But, um, but then I got stressed out at the idea of, a boat taking on water and getting stuck in. And where was this? You didn't say where this was yet. I didn't know. Okay. Uh, I'm ready. (laughs) (laughs) But I also was thinking about the one that you did for the P Boney, right? The, was it the Um, bluebell? The, yes. What did I say? Bloodshed on On the bluebell. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a guys. That's a P Boney. Yes. Join our Patreon. (laughs) So this case was all over the news back in the day. And then it actually just popped back into the news recently again. So I was like, okay, I really want to cover this one. I don't, if somebody suggested it, you can just let me know and I'll give you a shout out the next time. But I don't think anybody has. I've hmm. just been interested in this case. I sounded interesting to me. Interesting. It's very interesting. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that you agree with me at the end of this episode. <laughs> uh, there wasn't a ton of information on the case or the players for what will be obvious reasons later on. But that's why I figured this would be perfect for a split. Yeah, I'm ready. I got 99% of my information. I do not have 99 problems. I got 99% of my information from court documents like Ooh. you did for your case. Yep. Uh, and then used random articles to fill in additional details and information. Awesome. So the key player here is Nathan Carmen, who was born on July 6th. Oh my <laughs> gosh. 1994. Creepy. So today's July 5th, if yeah. Laura didn't already tell you. Yeah. So his... But he, yeah so yeah words (laughs) Mm -hmm. so he was born to linda and clark carmen in middletown connecticut when he was a child his parents separated and his mother struggled to maintain a harmonious relationship with him nathan had asperger's which is a form of autism that's characterized by social awkwardness and repetitive behavior Mm -hmm. but linda suspected that there was something more going on based upon nathan's behavior On Halloween in 2009, the police were called by the parent of a local trick-or-treater who realized that Nathan was handing out fish guts in a Ziploc bag to the trick-or-treaters that were coming to his house. Oh, oh my gosh. That's actually probably like the most fucked up thing I can think of finding in my kid's treat bag. Yep. I'm not even sure. I think I would assume it was fake because, well, obviously you're not going to assume that when you open it and smell it, but like... I just can't imagine, although it made me think of, so I'm a big Boy Meets World fan and I have been listening to Pod Meets World, yes. which is their rewatch um, with three of them. And they haven't gotten to this episode yet, but it made me think of when Mr. Feeney is handing out rulers. <laughs> it's a lot better though. I'd rather a ruler than fish guts. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I don't, I don't know what I would think it was. I, I assume I mean. fish guts smell like fish. Right. So like at first you'd be like, is this some kind of like joke, like some crazy Halloween thing? And it's then like, you'd realize it's no joke. Yeah. It's just like very, that's a very like sadistic thing to yeah. do. Ugh. Yeah. A year later, when Nathan was only 16, he no longer wanted to live with his mother and he wanted to move out. He was obviously very young and Linda wanted to be able to keep an eye on him. So the two discussed it and they compromised and they agreed that Nathan would stay in an RV parked in her driveway. That seems fair. 
I think that'd be pretty sweet if I was 16. Like you got your own space. Exactly. When Nathan was around 17, he was diagnosed with potential mood and psychotic disorders with a history of hostility and aggression to support the diagnoses. By the way, some of this, uh, I think comes off choppy and it's because the information I would normally include doesn't exist on the mm-hmm. interwebs. So I just yeah. want to point that out because it annoys me, but I can't do anything about it. I was saying during the break to Marina about my, the first half of this episode, my case, I felt the same. I'm like, am I just reading you facts? Is this yeah. too much? But that's, that is the problem. We usually try to fill it in with, to make it genuinely like a, a story. story right? right. Um, but it's hard. And that's why we've loved doing splits when we can, mm-hmm. because it allows us to do these cases that we could not stretch into a full episode. Um, but I don't think for what it's worth, I don't think it sounds choppy. I think, okay. Thank I'm, you. I'm enthralled. Okay. It seemed like most of Nathan's aggression was directed towards his poor mother, Linda. Nathan would throw tantrums when things didn't go his way. On one occasion, Linda had burned some cookies, so he threw the whole tray of cookies at the wall. Oh, that makes me sad. Yeah, I know. Like, I can just picture Linda's, like, defeated face. Like, it would just be like a, oh, no. Yeah. Linda was dating a man at the time who viewed Nathan's behavior as a big, waving red flag. He told Linda... Soon enough, he's going to slit your throat while you're sleeping, which that to me is a bit of a leap based Uh, upon the Mm -hmm. information that I have. But like, I'm going to guess that this guy who's like living there and dating the mom had a little bit more information than me just searching the interwebs. Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm, yeah, I'm going to think that there's a lot more going on we didn't know about. He had reason to maybe, maybe jump to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If not, he's just super dramatic. Yeah. Well, all, (laughs) all things are possible. Cookies at the wall, slit your throat. I mean, yeah. It could escalate that quickly. My husband is a cookie fiend. It's possible. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) And poor Linda had her own issues to deal with in addition to receiving the brunt of Nathan's hostility. She struggled to make ends meet due to chronic unemployment, depression, and a love of gambling. That's where her wealthy father comes in. Linda was the son of John Chocolos, Mm. who was a wealthy businessman. Want to try that again? John Chocolos. No, Linda was the who? She was the daughter yep. of John <laughs> Chocolos. She was not the son. No. She was the daughter. I could have said that probably I, like four more times. I'm like, am I saying it wrong? No. Chocolos. I know. I appreciate that you said his name like I would know the name better than you. <laughs> the daughter. Yes. He was a wealthy businessman. I okay. think I also called him a businessman. He's only one person. So I'm doing At really well. Yeah. Yeah. He was a millionaire who made his money by building and renting (laughs) nursing homes and other real estate ventures. Sorry, guys. I'm really, it's been a busy day, but we're going to, we're power through. She gets giggly and then, and then can't control it as you might have figured out by now. Yeah. John had two residential properties, one in Windsor, Connecticut, where he maintained his business office and he had another home built in West Chesterfield, New Hampshire. Do you know where that is? Mm -mm. Okay. (laughs) John and his wife, Rita, had four daughters, Elaine Chocolos, Linda Carmen, Charlene Gallagher, and Valerie Santilli. John used his wealth to help Linda out when she was in a bind, but he also used it to gain some control over her. Mm -hmm. In the process, he developed a close relationship with Nathan, and he used his money to spoil him. John bought Nathan a white Irish sport horse named Cruz, which I cannot imagine the points that scored him as a grandfather. But also what? A horse? A horse. Why? I mean, when you're a millionaire, why wouldn't you buy your grandchild a horse? I mean, okay. (laughs) 
While Nathan's relationship developed with his grandfather over the years, his relationship with his mother only got worse. That relationship reached an all-time low when Nathan's beloved horse died. The horse was described as his only friend, which is so so sad. sad. And maybe that's why his grandfather got it for him. That would be fair. Because it's like a really big pet. It is. They say, yeah, yeah. I was thinking, um, having had horses, I should know this, but I was thinking... That horses are like big dogs, but they actually say that about cows. So I was very wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So my son's obsessed with cows. So maybe I'm going to get a cow someday. (laughs) Nathan was devastated and stopped talking to his mother, communicating only through handwritten notes. Oh, no. And Nathan's mental health suffered. They had to delay scattering the horse's ashes because Nathan had a psychotic episode at school. Linda said that Nathan called the vice principal Satan and his secretary an agent of the devil. Oh, dear. Linda's suspicions that there was more than autism going on with Nathan was further solidified when Nathan began having paranoid delusions and was spouting off crazy religious ideals. Oh, no. Yeah. And that makes me think of Lori Vallow, where you're like, that religious ideal makes you literally schizophrenic. Yes. Like, uh, yes, it doesn't it doesn't go together with reality exactly yep i was missing the vocabulary that i needed to finish that sentence (laughs) you could just take that clip and apply that throughout this case (laughs) yes yeah this is probably around the time that nathan started coming up with the bad ideas we're going to be talking about oh no starting in 2012 and 2013 nathan began asking his grandfather's trust attorney and financial advisors detailed questions about nathan's interest in his grandfather's assets and trusts red flag red flag (laughs) hide your kids hide your wives because your grandson's gonna kill you john shouldn't laugh it's not funny (laughs) but it is john being the responsible financial planner that he was created various trusts for his family including the chocolos family dynasty trust (laughs) The dynasty trust was designed to provide distributions to his four daughters and also to trusts in the names of his four daughters. Okay. Yep. John also had additional assets set up in his name that would pass from his estate to his daughter's trusts after his death. Under the terms of the trusts, the daughters had some control to name the beneficiaries of those trusts. Mm -hmm. And then under the terms of the trust, I've said the word trust so many times, (laughs) the trustees, Larry Santilli and Paul forgive me for this name sterzala it's s-t-e-r-c-z-a-l-a sterzala i think so i think the c is silent yes um had the power to decide whether to make distributions from the dynasty trust and from the daughter's trusts receiving the funds from the dynasty trust i did actually follow all of that basically he's got a bunch of money he's got some money that will go directly to his daughter some money that goes in kind of a holding Mm -hmm. they've got some control over where that money then goes Mm -hmm. uh got it yep Nathan, in nurturing the close relationship with his grandfather, wasn't left out. Hmm. By 2013, John had set up two bank accounts that Nathan was the beneficiary of upon John's death. There was one account with about $150,000 that was designed to cover Nathan's college expenses. expenses. There was also a second account that contained approximately $400,000 that listed both Linda and Nathan as beneficiaries Hmm. on John's death. Okay. Nathan graduated high school in 2012 and enrolled in community college, but he failed most of his courses. Oh, yeah. He began to spend significant time with his grandfather and even attended some of his business meetings. Linda and Nathan did not have a close relationship at all, Mm. but John convinced Linda to make Nathan the beneficiary of her trust funded by the Dynasty Trust. 
Though Nathan didn't need the money at that time, as his grandfather was paying for all of his personal expenses, including his truck and his apartment. Uh, that's nice. And then also, would Linda's would Linda get access to her money after John dies, or it's like ongoing? And after she dies, there would be access to her money. To so there money? was. It was set up multiple ways. The way that I understand it is that Dynasty Trust probably mm-hmm. had what's called like sprinkle provisions, where like while he was alive, the daughters could. Like the trust was set up to benefit them. Mm -hmm. And then there were also trusts set up for the dynasty trust to fund for them. And I think basically upon his death, then Linda controls her trust. I'm I'm sure it's a very complicated document. And then the grandfather asked her to name Nathan as the beneficiary of that trust, where if John dies and Linda dies, Nathan would get her All piece of, of the trust. Yeah. And the reason I was asking about that is because John is currently alive and well, as is Linda on, Cur- on the page that I am on. Yes. Oh, they are both no. alive and well. <laughs> okay. Yes. Okay. As we speak. Okay. Well, uh-huh. okay. Maybe this is okay. I, I was going to take us off on another tangent, but I feel like we've subjected our equivalents to yeah. enough of those. If they're, I if will. you're still with us, thanks guys. <laughs> So even though his grandfather was sharing the wealth, Nathan wanted more. Of course he did. On dis- uh, no- November. On November 6, 2013, despite living in an apartment in Bloomfield, Connecticut, Nathan registered his truck in New Hampshire and mm-hmm. got a New Hampshire driver's license using his grandfather's home address in Westchesterfield, New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Five days later, Nathan used his shiny new New Hampshire license to purchase a Sig Sauer rifle at Shooter's Outpost in Hookset, New Hampshire. The salesman asked him what he needed the rifle for, and Nathan said target shooting. The sales associate told him that he could recommend a more economical model for target shooting, and Nathan told him that he'd done his research and he wanted this gun, and it was about $2,100. Whoa. About a month later, on December 20th, 2013, Nathan's grandfather, John, who was asleep in his bed, was shot twice with a rifle the same caliber as the Sig Sauer Mm. purchased by Nathan just a few weeks earlier. That is an incredibly unfortunate coincidence for Nathan, especially Mm. considering Mm -hmm. he'd financially benefit from his grandfather's death. I was really hoping there was some loophole in the trust that would save his grandfather's life, but no, 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 no. In another move by... A seemingly innocent man. Uh-huh. After John's death, Nathan discarded his computer hard drive and the GPS unit that had been in his truck the night his grandfather was murdered. Jeez. That's not suspicious at all. No, it's like weird because some of those thoughts are really good. Like, yes, you should not have the GPS unit, but then also like you literally just bought a rifle and then killed someone with that rifle. Like a so, few weeks later. Right, exactly. It's like you were almost planning. Right, right. And then you did a bad job. Yeah. He didn't do that bad of a job. I'll, I'll, okay. I'll get back right. to that. Mm-hmm. Cops were already suspicious of Nathan since he'd been the last person to be seen with his grandfather before sure. his death. But yeah. Nathan denied any involvement. He said he had dinner with his grandfather on December 19th, dropped him off at his house, went inside for a few minutes, and then left when he took a call. Nathan denied owning a six hour and he declined to take a polygraph, which I can't really put that in the guilty column because I yeah. wouldn't want to take one either, even if I was innocent, because no. those are garbage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With no further evidence, including the GPS data from his truck, the police didn't have enough to charge Nathan with his grandfather's murder. They didn't have proof that he had purchased the rifle? 
I think this was a very long investigation. Mm. I think it took him a minute to tie that together. Oh, that makes sense because it was the New Hampshire license and all that. So why would he have a New Hampshire license? They probably looked for anyone with Connecticut. Okay. All right. But you know, I'll I'll just, I'll jump right to the end and give you the spoiler. He's (laughs) never charged with his murder. What? They never put together enough evidence to charge him with his, his murder. And they had all this evidence. They just... I don't know, maybe because they had other things to charge him with, but he okay. was never charged with his grandfather's murder. I forgot for a minute that there was more murder coming. <laughs> There's, And I was like, wait, what the fuck is the point of this case? Nothing happens. I'm like, he's free. <laughs> I thought that's the what end. you were going to say. <laughs> the end. That's oh. why it was a split. The end. Yeah. It's over. <laughs> Man. Okay. So that's frustrating. All mm-hmm. right. I'm with you. Valerie Santilli, one of John's daughters, was appointed the executrix of John's estate, and Nathan inherited approximately $550,000 as a result of his grandfather's death. Mm-hmm. That $150,000 from the college account, you know, the community college that he dropped out of, uh-huh. and $400,000 from the beneficiary on death account. Nathan moved from Connecticut to Vermont after his grandfather's death and spent much of the next two years unemployed, because why well, work naturally. when you can live off that trust fund, totally. baby? In 2015, Nathan bought a boat and called it, it was either, he either called it this or it was already called this, Chicken Pox. Oh. That's a really shitty name for a boat. I don't like it. Like Bodie McBoatface is a better boat name. I don't like it. So I mentioned that Nathan and his mother didn't have a close relationship, but one thing that they did bond over was fishing. Weird. The boat purchase was great because now him and his mother could go on fishing trips together whenever they wanted. Uh In September 2016, Nathan scheduled a fishing trip aboard the chicken pox with his mother, who was happy to go. Isn't Sorry, it bad? You're it's right. the it's worst. It's such a bad name. It's the worst. So bad. Nathan told her they'd be fishing in the immediate vicinity of Block Island. Okay. Sounds nice. Mm, beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful scenery. Linda and Nathan left from Ram Point Marina in South Kingstown, Rhode Island. I think it's South Kingston. Rhode Island, around 11.13 p.m. on September 17th, 2016. Wait, say that time again? 11.13 p.m. They left? Were they going to, like, anchor and then fish in the morning? Either that or they might be night fishing. I think you get some real good fish at night. The big ones come out. Okay. I I think I'm a real good fisher person. (laughs) (laughs) You know all about the fishies. (laughs) Yeah, I know that people, like... um, like Ham and Asset in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. I know people go um, fishing off the jetty and off the beach at night for like sand sharks and shit. Oh, okay. Yeah, you catch different stuff in the day and night. Fair. That's a that's a precursor to our next, uh, a sneak preview to our next case. Oh boy. <laughs> Linda planned to be home by noon the next day according to the float plan that she left with friends. But noon came and went. What is a float plan? Um, it is basically like an itinerary I think it's like to let people know like where you're going, who you're going with, when you expect to be back. So that like, if you never return, they know to look for you. Convenient. Yeah. Because like you might not have cell service out in the middle of the ocean. Your son might murder you. Or that. Yeah. 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 So Coast Guard learned that the chicken pox hadn't returned from the fishing trip. (laughs) I can't. They begin an extensive search and rescue mission that spans six days. During that time, there was no sign of the chicken pox, Nathan or Linda. On September 25th, however, Nathan was rescued from an inflatable life raft by a commercial ship, the Orient Lucky. 
Wow. Talk about lucky. Seriously. Um, also, I was just realizing this is late September in the Northeast. So depending on how that weather was that year, that could be pretty cold and rough. Yeah. Yikes. Or, I mean, who knows now? It could be like 90. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> no way to know. I mean, probably Google would know, but <laughs> Linda, unfortunately, did not have the same luck. Uh-huh. Nathan told investigators that while they were fishing, he saw that the boat was taking on water below deck. He asked his mother to reel in the fishing line so that they could return to shore, but the boat sank quickly after his initial discovery. Nathan admitted that he didn't activate the boat's emergency signal Mm -hmm. or use the radio in any way during that time. He said that he and his mother fell into the ocean when the boat went down and that she died. Uh, okay. Nathan was able to grab the emergency life raft on which he survived for a week until he was rescued. Linda's body was never recovered and she was only 54 years old. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I mean, it's probably, well, I'm waiting to hear the rest, but it's probably good for him that her body was not recovered because I'm sure it was Mm. not just from drowning. I just, I I don't, obviously I don't have like the interview, but I'm wondering if he was just like, the boat went down, she died. Like, yeah. Like immediately, like, did it suck her under? Like, did you just leave her? Like what? That's what I mean. Cause you could, people can swim. Right. You know? Um, And you were able to get the life raft. Like, where was she? Like, this is so similar to the Bluebell story. Because he told like the same thing. He was like, yeah, it went down too quickly, but I was able to get the raft. (laughs) Yes. But everyone else wasn't. Yes. Yes. And then I was just picturing that little girl, like seeing him walk by in the hallway and he just like left her for dead. Yep. And she was on that fishing net or whatever it was. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. It's too bad. That's not the case for him. No, no. With his mother gone, Nathan stood to inherit his mother's share of John's estate, which was worth around $7 million, they estimated. I was going to say, when you said that John was a millionaire, I was like, I think he's actually, he's, he's like a multi, multi multi-millionaire. Yeah. He's not, he doesn't have just one of the the millions. No, he's got multi-millions. But Nathan made a grievous error. Thank God. In October, 2016, Nathan made an insurance claim to boat oh. to boat U.S. <laughs> yes. for the loss of the chicken pox for approximately $85,000. Oh. If you learn nothing else from Grimm, know this. Those insurance companies are going to get you if you've done wrong. Uh-huh. They're going to get you. Yep. You can commit murder, but not insurance fraud. Mm, yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Leave the insurance companies <laughs> out of your murder. Yes. Just leave them out of it. <laughs> So as they do, insurance company Mm -hmm. investigated Nathan's claim. Yep. Nathan's insurance policy contained an exclusion providing that there was no coverage for, quote, any loss, damage, expense, or cost of repair caused directly or indirectly by incomplete, improper, or faulty repair. Mm -hmm. During the investigation, the insurance company learned that prior to the fishing trip with his mother, Nathan removed two forward bulkheads removed the trim tabs from the transom of the hull and improperly repaired several large holes. How did they figure that out? I've, I'm guess they might have recovered the boat. Oh, maybe. Because otherwise I have no idea. Or he admitted to it. Oh, oh, oh. But Either, I'm just going to yeah. break it down a little bit because I read those. I was like, huh? He did the what to the huh now? <laughs> um, according to Wikipedia, which I figured was good enough for informational purposes, yes. mm-hmm. uh, bulkheads in a ship serve several purposes. They increase the structural rigidity of the vessel, mm-hmm. which that sounds like a good thing. Mm-hmm. They divide functional areas into rooms and create watertight compartments mm-hmm. that can contain water in the case of a hull breach. Think Titanic. 
Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then some bulkheads and decks are fire resistance rated as Mm -hmm. well. The transom that he messed with is the vertical section at the rear of the boat. And that previously had trim tabs, which are essentially paddles that are attached to the transom that make it easier to keep the boat level, especially Mm. if there's uneven weight distribution. mm -hmm. But for him, he removed those and left the four holes on the rear of the boat and he sealed them from the top, but he basically like just shoved putty in them and he didn't put anything underneath to like fully seal them. So you could literally just shove the top part back into the Which is probably exactly what he did. Yes. Got them out to the middle of, you know, the Long Island Sound and then, Mm -hmm. uh, and then did that. Yes. I guess. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. In January 2017, Boat US denied Nathan's claim based upon the fact that he made improper and shoddy Mm -hmm. repairs and otherwise modified the boat in ways that would cause it to sink. Mm -hmm. Carmen appealed... No, not Carmen. Nathan is his name. (laughs) Nathan appealed the claim denial and Boat US brought a federal lawsuit seeking a declaratory judgment that the claim was rightfully denied. So basically asking the court to look at the policy, look at the facts and say that they're correct. Boat US maintained that the loss of his boat was not not accidental, but was instead caused by Nathan's incomplete, improper, and faulty repairs. And they also alleged that Nathan breached an implied warranty of seaworthiness because he knew his boat was unseaworthy and this yep. condition caused its sinking. Who else is listening to this uh, this statement from the insurance company? Because if I'm the police, I would like to know that. Right. <laughs> and it was actually this investigation into the insurance claim that assisted the police yes. with the rest of the case, which yep. like... What do we tell you about these? Yep. Like leave the insurance, no insurance fraud out of it. Yes. yes. Gosh. Um, and by the way, when the insurance company was going to insure him in 2015, they had someone come out and inspect the boat and it was seaworthy uh, yep. and did not so, have these issues. Okay. So like he definitely did it. Totally. The federal court judge agreed that it was likely the shoddy repairs that caused the boat to sink. And the judge concluded and said, to be clear, the court is making no determination of whether Mr. Carmen intended to sink his boat or to harm his mother. Those allegations are not a part of the counts mm. the court heard during the trial of this civil case. Yeah. Now, let's not forget, this was all to collect $85,000 from his insurance policy right. for the boat. And due to the information that came out, his aunt Valerie, the executrix of John's estate, was like, hold up. Uh Uh-huh. In July 2017, she filed an action in New Hampshire probate court to bar Nathan from inheriting any money from the estate. Good. So Nathan tried to argue that, first of all, he had nothing to do with either of these deaths. Of course. He said that his aunts had motive to kill their father for the inheritance money. But that argument is illogical because Nathan was <laughs> so the, did he. Yeah. yeah. But Nathan was the beneficiary of his mother's share in the right. event of her death. So the aunts would have to kill him too in order right. for that to make sense. Right. And regarding the allegation that he murdered his mother, he denied it and said that even if he did abandon her on the sinking ship, that's not a crime. Whoa. That's Ugh. cold. Ugh. Not correct, but cold. Like so i'm sorry did you just let her drown like and even then like what how yeah like that's an awful thought because if that's how it went down no pun intended then she probably survived the sinking of the ship and was like swimming around aimlessly so i think that based based upon the information that was in the indictment and the way that it was written i think that they believe that he got on the boat murdered his mother yeah, yeah 
I think he drove it around for like most of the week because it said that he like evaded the co- like the chicken pox evaded coast guard detection or some like oh. something of the sort. Like I don't think that he spent a week on the life raft. I think he spent oh. like a day or two on the life oh raft. Oh my god, I didn't even think of of course he could lie about that. Yes. Oh, I'll Oh, and then of course that that is why he didn't make any mayday calls or do anything any of the emergency stuff because it would have said when and right. where they were. Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. What a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. The investigation into Nathan continued for years and it no involved way. the FBI, the Coast Guard, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives, Connecticut State Police, and the police departments of Windsor, Connecticut, South Kingston, Rhode Island. Whoa. Just a few Jeez. agencies. Yeah. But on May 10th, 2022, Nathan was charged in federal court by an eight count indictment for the murder of his mother and for fraud. What did I tell you? I, I know. <laughs> what did I, I tell you? I knew you were going to love it when I was like, he of made course. one grievous of error. <laughs> of course. I can't tell you how many murders I've gotten away with because I didn't also <laughs> commit insurance fraud. <laughs> <laughs> it's a secret. <laughs> Uh, So I mentioned before, he was never charged for his grandfather's murder. And although he wasn't officially charged with it, I don't think that the investigators ever gave up on the idea that he killed him. Uh I mean, that's like, they basically said, they said it in the indictment that he murdered him. Um, And they were still investigating him years after John's death because that same indictment said that when he left for the fishing trip with his mother in 2016, they said he removed his computer from his home, preventing law enforcement from reviewing the contents while he was away on the trip. Wow. So I wonder like that makes me feel like it was a cat and mouse game totally for years after the fact wow so nathan maintained that he had nothing to do with his grandfather's death and interestingly (laughs) in a court filing nathan asserted that his grandfather had a young mistress who was dating a man who had a drug habit and he felt that they were responsible and had a motive so the aunt angle didn't work so now he's going switching yeah okay the woman was called Mistress Y in the pleadings, and she was only 25 when she started a sex for cash arrangement with John the year he died. Mistress Y was interviewed by police, and she said that she spoke to John hours before his murder, and Nathan was leaving his grandfather's place at that time. Nathan argued that it could have been Mistress Mistress Y or her jealous boyfriend, so they both had a motive to kill him. The police rejected this theory based upon the other evidence supporting Nathan as the killer, uh-huh. like the Sig Sauer Nathan uh-huh. bought weeks prior to the murder. Uh, and he also had a second tactical shotgun that police seized from his residence, and he refused the polygraph, mm-hmm. which everyone else agreed to take. But Nathan made a fair point in arguing against the polygraph. I didn't hate this. He said, because the accuracy and reliability of polygraph results are questionable Mm -hmm. and the principle of attempting to prove my innocence, a seeming waiver of one of the most fundamental human rights, the right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty is abhorrent to me. Okay. I don't like anything, but that's... It's a valid argument. It is. It is. And we know we don't like polygraphs. They're not... No, they're like... Useful. Because it's like... It's like if they're if you're saying you're innocent and you think they're innocent and you fail it, you're like, well, it was just crappy. And if they're if they're guilty but you don't have any other evidence and they fail it, you're just like, well, it could just be crappy. I mean, like right. they're just like, yeah. <laughs> I no. guess they're like sometimes helpful, but yeah. they really no, you can't rely on them. Right. But anyways, he was never charged with that murder. They had enough on him for his mom and the insurance fraud. His trial was scheduled for October 10th, 2023, but it's been canceled. 
On June 15th, 2023, a statement was issued that Nathan Carmen had died in Cheshire County Jail in Keene, New Hampshire. Nathan was in a single cell and was found dead by guards at 2.30 a.m. Oh. His death was investigated by the Keene Police Department. Nathan had spoken to his defense team just a day earlier, and his attorney said he was, quote, in good spirits. His attorney said he was heartbroken because they were prepared to go to trial on October 10th, and he wanted his client to have his day in court. Hmm. The charges were dropped given his death. Well, yeah. None of Nathan's family came to claim his remains, and his attorneys paid for his funeral, which was held at a church in Waterbury, Connecticut, and the church was nearly empty. Wow. The autopsy was recently completed, but the results won't be released because the death was ruled as not suspicious. A death is ruled not suspicious if no one else is involved or if no crime is committed. So based upon that mm -hmm. fact, I, and the fact that they didn't say that he died of natural causes, I'm going to say that he died by suicide. Yes, I would think so. Wow. And you know, I do feel like, I think what I've gotten, I, I, I lost a little bit as we went through the details was how you, what you told us about him in the beginning, which was all the issues he was dealing Mm -hmm. with. And it makes me wonder, like, was it, you know, obviously we don't know all the details, but was he not treated? Did he not get the help he needed? Right. Could this have been prevented? Like, yes, obviously it's like, yeah, you want to see justice for the people who were murdered. But at the same time, like it, he clearly had something going on that he needed help okay. for. I think mental health is an underlying theme in almost every yeah. case that we talk about. Even well, if the underlying thing yeah. is just like psychosis, like... I you mean, know, that makes you feel a little better that you don't just have like perfectly happy, normal people going around murdering people. Yeah. They, I would hope they have something wrong. Elle Wood says that, right? Yeah. <laughs> happy people don't murder people. <laughs> they just don't. Yeah. So, but, um, yeah. but that's why I also tripped over my words when I said, oh, July 6th. And then I yeah. was like, I was going to say it's his birthday or it would have been his birthday. And I didn't yeah. want to give it away that he is now right. no longer with us. And nor did you want to be quite as, as much of a downer as I was yes. when I was saying Annie's birthday. Yeah. Took Fair. us up, took us right back down. That's what I do. So well, that damn. was the case of Nathan Carmen. So wow. it, I remember when he was arrested, it was all over the news about, you know, we were just hearing about this insurance fraud scheme mm-hmm. to get all this inheritance mm-hmm. money. And then it just popped up again because of his, his death. His death. Wow. But yeah, I, I have not heard of it, but that's often the case. I, I don't know. There's a lot of cases I haven't heard of that everyone's There's, familiar with. And people will message me like all the time. Mm-hmm. Like I have a friend who constantly is sending, are, are you watching this case? Yeah. Did you hear about this case? And I'm like, yeah. I don't have time. No. I can only focus on one I know. horrific thing at a time. Seriously. Like I just can't keep up with it. I remember when we first started Grimm, my husband was like, oh, are you guys going to have enough cases? I was like, my husband are, said the are same you thing. kidding me? Yes. I mean, the only, only thing holding us back are cases that are smaller. And by that, I mean the information we have access to. Right. Uh, but other than that, I mean, it's sadly, I was actually, I'm still in the middle of my research for my next case, but another one popped up and I like, I have it bookmarked on my phone because I want to look at that one next It's not even on our list already. Yeah. Um, so, and then we get suggestions, which we love all yes. the time. So yes. there's a lot, a lot of sadness. Yeah. But we're here to tell it to you and laugh. Not about it, but in between. <laughs> just, you gotta let, la- you just gotta laugh to keep yeah. from crying, you know? Yeah. 
Okay. Okay. Well, if you're enjoying listening to Graham and, and if you stayed with us through this whole episode, congratulations. You must really love us. Please rate and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts to make sure you don't miss any episodes. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, make our day by leaving us a written review. You can find our page on Facebook by searching Grim colon a true crime podcast. If you want to subscribe to our Patreon, go to Patreon and search Grim colon a true crime podcast. We got some P-bonies for you. Yep. Follow us on Instagram at Grim Crime Podcast for information on future episodes and case photos check out our link tree which is on our instagram if you want to check out uh the link for our merch and or you can go to etsy and if you want to send us a case suggestion or just say hi you can email us at grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com listen learn and stay alive until next time because the future is grim